One of the things I've grown to enjoy over the past 27 years of being married to my wife, Christy, is traveling with her. We like to go see the world. We would describe ourselves as low-budget travelers, which simply means we drive pretty much anywhere we go. We've been known to be that family that like, packs bread and like peanut butter and jelly and stops alongside the road to eat. Uh, we share meals at fancy restaurants to just save money, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, one of the things that's important to us is helping our kids be to all 50 states in the United States. And so far, we're like 45, 46. We're almost there. We've seen a few more than the kids, but they might live a little longer than us. So good luck. Uh, we've got you this far, right? We also enjoy traveling internationally. And uh, we got to go visit some of our mission partners in North Africa several years ago. Actually, people from right here at Crossroads, even though we weren't serving here at the time. And on our way, we knew that we had to make a layover somewhere. And we got to pick where that would be. So we looked at all the choices and we chose the first stop to be Rome. Well, you know, you've heard that Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, we saw it in a day, let me tell you, okay? We, at least we saw everything we wanted to. We started at the Colosseum. We went over to the Forum. We saw the prison that they think that Paul was placed in in Rome. And then we went to the Vatican and spent the day there. We ate lots of good food and we made a mental note, this is a place we'd like to come back. We continued on our journey to North Africa, had some awesome opportunities there to be part of what God's doing there. And then on the way back, we chose Paris. We thought, let's go to Paris on the way back. And we did. We spent about 24 hours in Paris. We tried to see everything we could. The Eiffel Tower, a couple of the you know, famous places there, the Louvre, all that stuff. And then we like just slept the whole way back on the plane because we had worn ourselves to death, right? Uh, traveling is something that we love to do. In fact, both Rome and Paris are on our bucket list to go back and spend a little longer than a day if you uh, can oblige us to that, right? We've been looking over the past couple of weeks at the book of Acts. And one of the reasons we chose the book of Acts is we wanted to trace the work of the Holy Spirit in ordinary people's lives like you and me, seeing how they were empowered by the Spirit to live and love like Jesus. And I hope as you have gone there with us that you've been able to see Jesus's promise come to life. He said to his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see playing out and recorded by Luke all throughout the, the book of Acts. I hope that you've been inspired by the people that we've looked at, like the person Stephen, who, who served faithfully and humbly, who spoke boldly, and also who stood courageously. I hope that you've been challenged by the journey that we saw Peter on, where he comes to this realization that it's not just the Jewish people that God loves, but it's all people and how that changed the trajectory of his life. I hope as we've watched this guy named Saul, who is also known as Paul, as we watch the transformation happen in his life, that maybe your own religiosity has been challenged. Maybe you've been uh, prompted and maybe even encouraged to think about how to direct all your energy, effort, and your life into telling other people about what God has done in your life. That's what Paul spent the rest of his life doing. I hope that the transformation and the change that you see in the Apostle Paul, it, 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 it makes you feel encouraged that your life can change. It's a powerful demonstration of what happens when a person decides to follow Jesus and allows the Holy Spirit to work in their life. We are going to 
uh, travel with Paul on another stop that he makes on one of his uh, road trips. Now, most people call these road trips missionary journeys, right? And the, the Luke describes three of those. And, and many of the New Testament letters are, are stories and, and moments that Paul spent on these journeys. Last weekend, Mark White took us, took us to a stop on, on one of Paul's journey, the, the town of Antioch. And there what we saw is the people described there who were following Jesus were called little Christ. Is there any better description than you and I who've decided to follow Jesus and trying to live in love like him could be described as? I hope not, right? Well, Acts 17 records the second of Paul's road trips, his journeys. And it outlines a really consistent pattern that we see in most of these road trips of Paul where the first thing he would do when he went into a new town is he would go first to the synagogue. And there he would tell the Jewish people and probably some God-fearing Greeks as well about the truth of God, the truth about Jesus. And he would do that through the scriptures. At that time, we need to realize that the scriptures consisted of the Old Testament law, the books of prophecy, and also Psalms. All of them speak to and about Jesus. The reaction among the Jews was often a mixed bag. In fact, after visiting Antioch, Paul goes to a town, Thessalonica. There he teaches the Jewish people about the truth of Jesus. And the Jewish people there form a mob and try to kill Paul. In fact, they can't find him and his traveling partner, Silas. And so they go to the home where he had been staying. It was a, a man named Jason who lived there. And because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they arrested Jason and took him into custody. Well, after that, Paul and Silas, they travel on to Berea. And in Berea, they follow that same pattern. Even though they'd been persecuted in Thessalonica, they went right back to the synagogue in Berea and did the same thing over and over, teaching and proclaiming the truth about God and Jesus. I love what Luke records about the people of Berea. He says this about them in Acts 17, verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. I think that's because they didn't form a mob and try to kill him. That seems noble, right? But he also makes another observation. They received the, great, the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I need to confess, I have a little daydream as a preacher. And that daydream is that I'd like one time just to maybe put a few things in a sermon that are really not biblically correct just to see if anybody notices or would object. Now, I need to make this disclaimer. I am not trying to do that today. So if from this point forward, there is something that's not real biblical, just see me afterwards, right? Or just stand up and start screaming for that matter, right? I want you to know here at Crossroads, we take the word of God very seriously. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture. We believe that the Bible is the true word of God. And through it, he reveals himself to humanity. That the Bible is true and accurate and can be trusted as the standard for truth. It's internally consistent and it tells the story of the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's crazy that God used over 40 different people to write the 66 books of the Bible and they were all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or servant of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I, and that for that matter, anyone who teaches from this stage at Crossroads does so under the authority and in submission to the elders of Crossroads Christian Church. 
One of the primary responsibilities of being an elder is to ensure that the church's teaching and practices are accurate biblical theology. The chairman of the elders here at Crossroads and one other elder receives my teaching notes every week before I say one word from this stage. That's how seriously we take teaching the word of God. But did you notice who the people were in Berea who were doing that kind of behavior, who were taking serious scripture? It was many of the believers. I hope after two years of being your pastor that you know that when I get up to teach, we're gonna use the Bible. I hope you feel encouraged to bring your own copy of the Bible or to use the one that's in the seat back in front of you or on a device that you bring. And I also hope that you read it, not just when we're together, but every day, often. And we're gonna do that just right now. If you wanna join me, join me in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be looking at what Luke records happening as Paul leaves Berea and enters into the next town where we'll spend most of our time today. Acts chapter 17, let's begin reading in verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was, with, uh, was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. We see Paul following this pattern by going first to the synagogue in Athens. Athens was a significant city in the Roman Empire. It had once been a leading military focus of the, of the, of the Roman Empire, but now when Paul visited it, it was functioning more as the intellectual and cultural center of the ancient world. It parallels modern like Vienna or Paris, Rome or New York, not necessarily in size of population, but in influence. People like Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeon, they had lived and taught there. Athens was also the idolatry capital of the world, a city that contained more idols than people. Historians think there were probably 30,000 different false gods or idols in Athens and probably only 10,000 men living there at the time. Bible commentary N.T. Wright says this, if you were interested in temples and idols and every kind of religious cult, Athens was the place to go. It offered everything. In the ancient world, there was a strong correlation between idol worship and sexual immorality. In fact, the way people would worship their God was actually typically through some type of sex act. N.T. Wright continues to write by saying this, worship these gods and your body and everybody else's body, is, it becomes a toy. Historians say that if you looked at the art from Athens, the sculptures, the paintings, even things that were put on vases, they left nothing to the imagination of the way worship happened in that ancient city. Paul looked around. He saw all the beauty, the best that the Roman world could offer in art and in architecture. But none of that beauty honored God. And so it didn't impress Paul one bit. In fact, Luke records that he was greatly distressed by the magnitude of the idolatry and immorality that he saw there. So Paul not only spoke openly about his concern in the synagogue, but he also reasoned in the marketplace with those who were there day by day. 
This marketplace area was called the Agora. When we think of marketplace, we think of like shopping. And while shopping happened in the Agora, there were lots of other things that happened there, much more than that. It was the media center of that city where heralds would come and proclaim the news because there was no newspaper, there was no television or radio, certainly not the internet. It was also the stock market where investors and business owners would come and shake hands face to face making transactions. It was the arts and entertainment area where artists did their work and they performed for the public. It was the intellectual center where ideas and politics, philosophies went and were debated. It was the cultural center where society's culture was shaped. It was like having the fall festival 15 week, 15, 52 weeks a year. It just happened this past week in our city, right? Well, Paul took the gospel there. He went straight to the heart of it all. And as he did, people were curious about what he was talking about. Let's continue reading now in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul encountered the intellectual elite in the Agora where there was a constant running debate about ideas, philosophies, even religion. And the two leading philosophies of this time were Epicureanism and Stoicism. Those may be new ideas to you. Let me just unpack them for just a moment. The Epicureans pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life and valued most of all the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain, free from disturbing passions, even superstitious fears, including the fear of death. They did not deny that there was an existence of gods, but they believed they had nothing to do with man. Epicurus, who was the leader of Epicureanism, taught that there was no afterlife and that at death, a person ceased to be. Now you might think this is just an ancient philosophy, but one of our own founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, was highly influenced by Epicureanism. In fact, the phrase or the idea, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not an American idea. It's actually an Epicurean idea. This other group of people known as the Stoics, they followed the teaching of Zeno and they, they were pantheists, which meant they believed that God was in everything and everything was God. Many gods is how you would describe what they practiced. They had a high sense of moral sincerity and a high sense of duty. The Stoics believed that everything was God, that God was in everything, and so that in all things, either good or evil, they were all from God and nothing should be resisted. They believed that there was no particular direction or destiny for mankind. Being a good person was like the pinnacle for those who were Stoics. Both ideas put man in the driver's seat. Paul faced this context, and probably one of the most challenging audiences he had ever faced in this city of Athens. It was a cultured, educated city that was proud of its history. As the intellectual center, much like maybe Harvard or Yale or the University of Kentucky, Paul spoke in a city that was perhaps different than any other place he had ever preached in. 
And some of those who heard him mocked him and called him a babbler. I thought it was interesting that the word babbler actually is a Greek word that describes a bird who goes around picking various types of seeds to fill its belly. They use that term to describe a third-rate philosopher who really didn't know what he was talking about, but just gathered a bunch of ideas from other people and kind of presented them as his own. That's how they were describing this guy named Paul, especially as he talked about this man named Jesus and this idea about the resurrection. Some even thought that the Greek word for resurrection was a female deity that was kind of like a partner to this guy named Jesus. The Athenians, they had a reputation for an interest in novelty. And as well as they would incorporate alien gods into their pantheon. They were very vigilant to ensure that any new idea did not undermine their well-established religious beliefs. And so they invited this guy named Paul, who was described as someone advocating for these foreign gods, to their meeting called the Oropagus. Some think that that means a place, but it actually was a group of people, a group of 30 people whose job was to listen to new ideas and to determine which one had validity. In fact, the Oropagus would hear from a person who claimed to be describing a new God to them, and they would determine if this God was legit, if their herald was credible, and, and if the, there was goodwill and benefit for the people by adopting this God in their pantheon. And if they agreed to, what they would do is then they would designate a certain day for this God to be worshiped. They would dedicate property and resources to erect a, a sculpture or a temple in that honor of that God. They invited Paul to talk about what he was presenting that day. It was an intimidating group and process for anyone. Let's see how Paul navigated that. Look at verse 22. Luke says this, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So, that, so you are ignorant of what the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Paul works to make a personal connection and relationship with the members of this council. I don't think he's flattering them. I also don't think he's condoning their pantheistic worship. But what he is doing is recognizing a desire they have for worship. And their desire was so strong to worship, they wanted to cover all the bases. They had made an altar to what they described as the unknown God. Most people think it was plural, the unknown gods, because they didn't want to miss any. He notices and says to them, I can tell you're very religious. I think there's a little sarcasm in that statement, but it also is a, is a sincere attempt to connect with them. I think it reflects that old adage, like nobody cares what you know until they know how much you care, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul cared. He was confident in what he knew. He also was compassionate. He expresses a concern over their spiritual condition in a way that wasn't necessarily judgmental. And that, my friends, is a very tricky line. You know that, don't you? You've maybe been walking that line recently or have walked it in the past. Maybe it comes as you're raising your kids and they begin making decisions on their own. And some of those decisions start to concern you about their motivation or about the state of their spirituality. And you wonder how to bring that conversation up with them. Maybe it's a friend or a loved one who reaches out to you about advice for a decision they're making or a relationship they're in. Maybe it's a loved one who d declares their new sexual identity. 
Maybe it's a believer that you know that you haven't seen at worship recently and you kind of wonder if they're, they're walking away or, or drifting away from their faith. I think in this moment, Paul models for us the managing of tension between being full of grace and truth. That was a description of Jesus, our Savior, from John 1:14, And I believe it's a description of all of us who say that we are followers of Jesus. Romans 8 and Galatians 5 make it very clear that the only way to be full of grace and truth is to be full of the Holy Spirit. Paul states to these Epicurean and Stoicism philosophers, the Oropagus, that he wants to make known to them what they have labeled unknown. And it's not a what, it's a who. Listen how the Holy Spirit continues to speak truth and love through Paul in this moment. Verse 24, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul reveals who this God is. It's actually the one true God, capital G God, the one who created the world and is therefore Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign over all things. Paul says he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He's not even served by human hands because all of life comes from him, not to him. I hope you can see what what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to make a connection with them about where they are and how they think in this moment so he can speak truth into them. He's providing a strong contrast to the false gods and idols they have been worshiping. And Paul's awareness to all this and his actions in this moment are prompted by the Holy Spirit. Remember, he came to Athens kind of accidental. It wasn't on his triptych, right? It wasn't on his GPS. He didn't didn't desire to go there, right? He ended up there because he was being persecuted and and fled there. And what he could have done was he could have just found the local coffee shop, found a table in the back, pulled out his phone and and done the thumb scroll through Facebook, kind of just minding his own business. He could have chose to be oblivious to all the idolatry and immorality around him and just just kind of gone on his own way. Or he could have pulled out a club or a torch and destroyed the whole place, calling down hell and fire and brimstone on the place, right? But what did Paul do? Well, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he was aware. He was concerned. He was compassionate. And he boldly proclaimed the truth about God. He described the true character of God. He declares that God, his personal desire is not just to give life to all people, but actually to be known by all people. He stresses just how close God is is to us. He moves from this religion idea to this relationship idea. The one true God can be known and wants to be known. He's not far away from any one of us, and he wants to have a relationship with every one of us. And those truths are clear clear throughout all of Scripture. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 3 records that God came down and walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. That's pretty close. Moses declares in Psalm 4, or Deuteronomy 4, 7, 
Is there any God that's like our God who is so close to us when we pray? David proclaimed in Psalm 46, one, God is our refuge and strength. He's ever present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us, David says. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Before Jesus was born, the angel revealed to Joseph, his earthly father, that this baby to be born was a fulfillment of prophecy. The prophecy was the virgin will give birth to a son. You're to call him Emmanuel because his name will indicate that God is with us. And Paul tells the Romans, you don't have to say in your heart, who will ascend to the heights to bring Christ down or who will go out to the deep to bring Christ up from the dead? No, he is very near you. That's still very true today. God is very near. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, no matter even what you believe right now, God wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And Paul stresses by even using some of the own philosophers of the day to prove his point. And then look what he says in verse 29. He says, therefore, because God is this, this is who God is, he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image made by human hands and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the truth section of what Paul has to say that day. Paul speaks of how patient God has been on mankind, overlooking ignorance in the past. But he speaks of a defining moment. And this moment is when Jesus would come, the one who's been appointed as judge. He's been appointed and affirmed with this power through his resurrection from the dead. Paul has spoken in grace about God's character, wanting those to have a, who heard him to have a full understanding of God's character, that he's creator, that he is provider, that he's sustainer. He's the source of all life. He's the sovereign over all things. He's close and personal. Yet he's also just and the judge. And Paul says the time has arrived for all people to come to understand and believe in who God is through faith in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus came on a mission to reveal God to us, but also to reconcile us to God. And God has been patiently waiting for just the right moment to send Jesus to accomplish his mission. The New Testament talks about this all throughout. I love one of the moments that Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Listen how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says this, Christ arrived on time to make all this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his Love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while him, whatever. Paul reveals the heart of God for all people, including those in Athens that day. He wants them to know that God expressed his love in Jesus' death on the cross to take away the wrath that they and all the rest of us deserve due to our disobedience and sin. That was God's plan, to reconcile mankind once and for all. And the response to all that is repentance. 
Peter wrote in his epistle later in the New Testament to address some doubters who thought like, God's being way too slow in keeping his promises. Is he not gonna come back and judge the world of all of its evil? And they thought they'd maybe, you know, missed God or he had given up on that plan. And so Peter writes these words, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the true heart of God. Let's see how the people responded in Athens that day. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, yeah, we wanna hear more about you from you on this subject someday. At that, Paul left the council. Some of them became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. You know, sometimes I think we paint Paul to be this super Christian. Like he's got this cakewalk of a life. Like once he came to faith in Christ, it was all, all just a bed of roses from that point forward. But don't forget that Paul is in Athens because he's being persecuted and has been persecuted multiple times. And also look at the meager response in Athens. It says one member of the 30-member Oropagus actually believes Paul and decided to place their faith in Christ. That kind of, like, kind of looks like a failure in some ways, especially if you're trying to like, calculate spirituality numerically. It's probably not a good thing to do. I believe that we should know numbers, like how many people are in our worship gathering? How many people at Crossroads are in a small group? How many people are serving? Why? Well, because every number represents a life and every life is really important. And I love that Luke captures the name of this one person who responded. His name was Dionysius. Acts is not the only book where Dionysius' name is recorded. It's actually, his name is recorded in another book called the Lamb's Book of Life, referred to in Revelation 21, 27, where all who place their faith in Christ find their name. As far as Athens goes, well, it was probably most likely a place where Paul never started a church. But this haphazard stop on his way to, uh, from Berea to avoid persecution was not a wasted trip. So I worked through this passage this week. There were just three or four life application questions that just kind of jumped off the page to me. And I'm gonna pose them to you right now. Here's the first. Are you a student of God's word? In a world of so much information and a constant barrage of messages by media, have you found the source of all truth in the only place it's actually found, the Bible? Newsflash, Google is not the ultimate source of all truth. And I wonder as you read and study the Bible, are you gaining a clearer picture of just who God is? You know, that's why we developed the roadmap. And the roadmap was to teach all of us how to live in love like Jesus by being with God, being with others, and being sent. And in being with God, we find that by reading and studying the Bible, we just don't grow in our knowledge of who God is, but we understand how to have a relationship with him. And the roadmap is designed to provide you action steps and resources you can take that you can utilize to grow in your relationship with God by being with him. If you're not subscribed to the roadmap, I'd encourage you to do that right now or very soon so you can continue on this journey of living and loving like Jesus with us. The Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us as we read and study God's word. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples before he left to be crucified. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what's yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me he will receive what he'll make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will, be made, what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit empowered and enlightened Paul through Scripture to know who God is. He'll do that for you and for me as well. The second question I think we need to answer today is this. Are you grieved by the worship of anything and everything that surrounds you other than God? Or do you just join in? Athens was a place that was filled with idolatry, immorality, and man-made philosophy. And before we point the finger at them, we could just substitute pragmatism or utilitarianism, atheism, agnosticism, communism, a whole host of other modern day philosophies from our world. Here's the newsflash. Many of us are still worshiping idols today. We just have different names for them. Check out the things that we worship that are just equivalent to the Greek or Roman gods like riches and wealth. Many of you are chasing riches and wealth and it consumes everything that you think about. You're really just worshiping the God of mammon. Maybe it's uh, wine, alcohol, drugs. Maybe that's what you think will bring peace and fulfillment to your heart. You're really just worshiping the God Bacchus. Many of people have sought immorality and lust as the answer to their life questions. They're just worshiping Esotardi or Aphrodite. Some people think political power or even nationalism is the saving thing for our world today. You're just worshiping the God of Mars. Many people in this room have bowed to the idol of health and, and even strength. You're just worshiping Hercules. You see, things haven't changed that much since the days of Athens. And maybe your God doesn't have a pretty name. Maybe your God is productivity. Maybe your God is just acceptance. Maybe your God is the success of your children academically or athletically. Maybe your God is just getting your own way. Realize this, what you worship or who you worship is really what controls your life. And that's why it's so important to be in tune with the Holy Spirit is not just teaching us, but is also prompting us and, and, and conforming us to the way that we should live. That's why Paul said these words to the Galatians. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. You'll not worship false gods, could be another way to say that. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's a pretty long list. Paul says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, you might circle that, that's the biggest but in the Bible, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no law. Here's a verse to underline. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its sinful passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The million-dollar question is, which list describes you? Are you controlled by the sinful human nature, or are you controlled by the Holy Spirit? 
Another question I think we need to answer is this. Are you able to share the truth about God and about Jesus in a relative and compelling way? We're increasingly finding ourselves in more and more conversations where the truth about God needs to be spoken, whether it's over the water cooler, at the locker, in the break room, on social media, over coffee, in the front yard or the backyard. It even could be at the fall festival, right? God could cause you to move or travel to a different location, maybe unexpected, all because he knows that he has arranged someone who needs to know the truth, and he sent you to be the witness of that truth. The book of Acts is filled with all kinds of examples of people through the Holy Spirit who are being a witness to the truth about God and of Jesus. And most of us in this room seize up when it comes to these type of conversations. Our palms get sweaty, we get a little nervous in our knees, and we actually choose to change the subject or just avoid the conversation altogether. It's way too past time to stop doing that. We can learn from Paul how to really kind of engage in these moments. He thinks, he just makes some genuine observations and he asks some good questions, I think, that are helpful. It might be in this moment where you just need to ask a a friend or or somebody that you're with in this moment, say like, man, I can tell that you're really experiencing some pain through this circumstance. You might ask them this question like, do you feel God's presence around you in this moment? You might ask them like, What sources of advice or counsel are you seeking right now? You might even choose to be a little sarcastic and add like, how's that working out for you right now, right? We wanna equip you for these moments. Again, in the roadmap under the be with others, it's about multiplying your influence. And it teaches you how to tell God's story and how to share your story. That's a great way to be equipped to not seize up in this moment, to be able to deliver the truth about God and about Jesus in a relative and compelling way. Paul gives us a great example. The final question I would leave us with today is this. Are we living in a way that would demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us? Tim Keller writes this. He says, if you understand the gospel and if you live consistently with it, it will not stay in your private world. It will not stay in your worship services. It will not stay on Sunday." If you understand the gospel and you live in accordance with the gospel, then the gospel itself will affect the way you live in every area of your life, including and especially your public life, your life in the public square. If the gospel is grasped, it will not just give your private world happiness, it will have to affect the way in which you do everything, including your public life. It has cultural shaping power. If it doesn't have cultural shaping power in your life, then you don't get it. You just simply don't believe it. The so what of living and loving like Jesus is so that the world around us would see a clear picture of who God is. They would experience his love. They would come to understand exactly just who Jesus is and why he's so important and central to all of our life. They'd also have a very powerful display of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is working in and through a person. Paul's visit to Athens shows us how God's messenger made inroads into the very center of culture's religious and intellectual life. His fearless proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection within the framework of God's work as transcendent creator, as imminent sustainer, as righteous savior is a very powerful example of what it can look like when the Holy Spirit is working in and through us. 
be aware of how God is working around you. And also be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in such a way, to share in such a way, to believe in such a way that the world will be different because of it. Would you join me in praying? God, sometimes when I look at the world, it seems different. It seems like we're so far gone on this side of spirituality, but maybe by looking at Athens, maybe we're closer than ever to a place where we so desperately need the truth of who you are and the truth of the gospel and the saving work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's work in all of our lives. God, I pray that we wouldn't miss that. First, I pray we wouldn't miss it in our own life. God, we would be convinced that there is only one true God. And it's, it's nothing that this world offers. It's only you. And I pray, like never before, we would believe that. We'd be convinced of that. You've revealed yourself in so many ways, God. May we, through faith, be confident in what we believe and who we are living for. God, I pray that the saving work of Jesus Christ and the empowered work of the Holy Spirit would be rampant in each of our lives, God, in such a way that we would think differently than the world, but yet we'd be so articulate in being able to explain why we have hope, why we have peace, where true life is found. And I pray we'd live in such a, a clear way that there is nothing that we're living for other than you. And I pray that that would be compelling to a world that's so desperately looking just to make sense of life and they don't really have the truth. Pray that they would see the truth in us. God, I pray that that would not only change our life, but it would change the world around us. All for your glory, God, we pray through Christ. Amen.